Matthew 5, from verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These words, uh, love your neighbor, are obviously among the best-known words that come from the Bible. I don't think people necessarily know that Jesus said them or that they're from Scripture. But as a result, they often sound kind of self-evident, don't they? And a little bit unsurprising. I think most people, if you stop them on the street and ask, what do you think of this as a moral code? Love your neighbor. They will probably nod their head and say, yes, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. And uh, the question is, well, why? I think partly it's because we are living in the hangover of Christendom. That's not the right word, I don't think, but (laughs) um, whatever you call it. Christendom, that's the word. And um, we have this Christian heritage. I think that's one reason why. I think another is just that, um, and this is the more important reason. I think the other reason why it's so unsurprising is that we do the same thing with these words as Jesus' original hearers did, which is that we bleed them of their power and intent when it comes to practically outworking this. What do I mean? Well, you probably realize that these words, love your neighbor, come from the Old Testament, like all the other scriptures that Jesus has been quoting. It comes from Leviticus 19, actually. And um, there it, it puts it like this. It says, um, how does it put it? It says, you shall not go around as a, uh, oh no, that's the wrong verse. <clears throat> it says, you shan't take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the sharp-eyed among you will realize that the way Jesus quotes it is different to how it appears in the original. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And then the way Jesus quotes it here, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So what's going on here? Somehow, this can happen to scriptures, that they they take on a life of their own, and then the meaning morphs and changes. So you probably heard people say that money is the root of all evil. Actually, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And it's just a subtle change, but it changes the meaning entirely. That's what would happen. Somehow, the command to love your neighbor had, had changed, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And the question then again is why? Maybe it's because they were theologically confused. When... Um, You're reading your Old Testament. You know that part of what it meant to be an Israelite was that you were so distinguished from all the people who weren't Israelites that sometimes it bordered on on aggression and and, and tipped into outright warfare. 
you read your psalms and you know that there is often invective and curses called down upon enemies. So I think it might have been a kind of theological thing that people saw this verse, love your neighbor, and then they said, but obviously along with that, you hate your enemy, which vastly changes the meaning and intent of what the verse has to say. So maybe that was part of it. And just to help you understand that, I think there's a huge difference between judicial hatred and personal hatred, between praying and living out God's will towards evil people in the way that the Israelites were called to, and personal animosity and hatred. And they're different things. And when you understand that distinction, the Old Testament has a different, uh, has a different feel. But I think more importantly, the reason why this verse has changed is for the very simple reason that we are human. It's not easy to obey. And when we understand what Jesus was teaching about it, we realize that this command, love your neighbor, with the intent that God had, that Jesus had behind it, is not at all self-evident, is not at all easy, and is completely surprising and unexpected. And we need to show why that's the case. Because the reality is, when you look around... Christians don't have the monopoly on love, do they? We don't, we're not the only ones who go around preaching a message of love. So what is different about what Jesus is saying here when he teaches love? What is different about his understanding of what it means to love your neighbor in comparison with the love that we see all around us in the world? That's the question that we need to wrestle with in order to understand how this verse um, can be so bled of its intent and power and then to realize what it's the full weight of its impact upon us and the, the, what we need to do is distinguish between love and love and show how there's different kinds of love and that's what I want to do Look, I'm going to give you four four distinctions the first is this that I believe that there is there's natural love and then that there is something that you could call godly love, unnatural love, spiritual love, and that they are completely different things. Jesus is totally happy to concede that in the world around, there is, there's love and that that's a normal thing to see. You can see it there, can't you, in like verse 46. Don't the tax collectors do the same? In other words, he's saying, don't bad people love. I've never met someone so bad that they can't love. You expect even some level of love in the most dark parts of society, don't you? He says, don't even the Gentiles do the same. In other words, people who've never heard and don't believe anything about the God of the Bible, don't they also express some kind of love? That's what Jesus says. What we're talking about then is that there's a love in the world which is a kind of lowest common denominator love. A love which most people express in their lives towards others at some level. And you could ask, well, what is that? Is that not the same thing? And of course, I think, no, what that is, is the grace of God, the vestige of God's image in man that we are still able to love. That there is still some sense of love and community and people who will um, love passionately and care for others and all these kinds of things. But remember, in this chapter, Jesus is calling us to something extraordinary. 
something extraordinary. Because we, we got that from places like verse 20 when he says that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then in that last verse, you, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So whatever Jesus understands by this love is not just this lowest common denominator love that we have in the world around us, that, that most people, the lovely people that you work with and interact with on a day-to-day basis, that they all share. It's not the same thing. How can it be? Because it could hardly be said that their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Or that they are perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. So we need to carefully distinguish between what is a natural love and what is totally unnatural. And realize that there's something very special and unique about the love that Jesus is talking about here. You could say on the one hand that this this natural love is, is fleshly love. It's love that belongs even in your sinful nature that you can still love. And therefore is not empowered in a direct way by God. But on the other hand, you have love which is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is of a different kind, a different quality altogether. So when when Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, what what he's saying there, if I could paraphrase, is that there there are certain results that you expect in the life of a Christian because they have the Spirit, and that these are the work of the Spirit, that he gets the glory, and even more, that they are a miracle in your life. So the love that the Spirit produces in you is not the same thing as the love that you had before you knew Christ, or that you see in the world all around you. That one is of the flesh, it's natural, The other is of the spirit. It's extraordinary. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. We could put it slightly differently and say one is an orphan love and the other is the love of a son. What do I mean? Well, to be without God as your father is to to live life as, as an orphan, isn't it? That's how the Bible explains life outside of God's family. A person who doesn't know God and hasn't come to know him is a person who's, been, who's never really met or experiences to some degree what it is to be cut off from the love of the Father. And if you've never experienced the love of the Father, then you are an orphan. And as an orphan, you can only ever love in a certain way. But the love that Jesus is talking about here in this passage is the love of a son. Doesn't he say, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, so that you may reflect the fatherly image as children of God. There's a difference, isn't there, between this natural love and this extraordinary, miraculous, supernatural love. The love of a son, the love of a child. Another way I could put it is like this, that one is totally unremarkable. It's just normal. And the other is so completely surprising and miraculous that it ought to catch everyone unawares. A few years ago, we met a man called Sema. Sema grew up as a, a Palestinian uh, refugee living on one of the refugee camps in Lebanon. So there are large camps of Palestinians who've been living there without passports, without rights. Um, they're not accepted by the Lebanese, and obviously they can't go back to Israel. And obviously it's quite natural in that context for fundamentalist Islam to breed and for men like Sema 
to become very passionately anti-Israel. And he would say that he was vehemently so. But Semmer, through experiences um, of God and of Christ, uh, and I believe even a dream about Jesus, he came to faith in Christ. And he's one of the most joyful people I've ever met. Semmer leads a church of Muslim background believers, or he did at the time we met him, in the Hezbollah district of Beirut. So Hezbollah are kind of the paramilitary organization who see it as their duty to wage warfare against Israel. And he's there leading a church in the middle of this area. They're not particularly, um, uh, you know, their faith isn't the most powerful driving force for them. So it's not that their Islam would be a threat to his Christianity. But it's more the fact that Sema has become so passionately pro-Israel that he has in his office there in the middle of this Hezbollah district a massive picture of Jerusalem strewn across the wall. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a wise thing to have or the right way to lean. But what I am saying is that something has so moved his heart that a man who ought to have every reason to despise his enemy has been transformed by the supernatural power of God. And I think that's a very good example of what I'm talking about here. That there's love that is natural and then there's love that is utterly supernatural. There's love that is unremarkable and then there's love that ought to take everyone by surprise. So when Jesus says here, love your neighbor, those words which can seem so empty of their power, in fact, are capturing something which ought to take the world by surprise. Let me move on and give you a second way of distinguishing these loves. I think on the one hand, there's this natural love which is bounded, has boundaries. And then there's the love that Christ is talking about which is boundless and has, does not see boundaries. So it's natural, it's human, it's animal to draw lines and to understand that there are those who are outside and those who are inside. And that's kind of the assumed understanding of how to read the verse in Leviticus. That's why people said, yes, love your enemy, but then, sorry, love your neighbor, but also hate your enemy. It was part of the mindset of the time that we draw a line around us and say there are certain people who are in and there are people who are out. It's quite normal for an oppressed people like the Jews to, to think that way, and I don't think it's unique to them. I think it's human. I think it's natural. I think we all think that way. And we do it by twisting the meaning of this word neighbor from what God intends to what is more natural for us. So that we give boundaries like this. That our neighbor are people who, they're people who are like us. Similar to us. Share our interests, our loves, our passions. Um, our, our outlook on life, our worldview, Our humor. Sometimes it's just silly things like that. Our neighbor will be people that we agree with. I found myself in political discussions recently and realized that they tend to get even more heated than discussions about Jesus and about religion. People that you agree with, you know, birds of a feather flock together, don't they? And I think that there's, there's, it's, it's human, it's natural to draw boundary lines, to, to bring people into your warm embrace who are just like you. Because basically we love ourselves, don't we? It's people also who who actively love us, who we we draw in. 
And so it, um, we're talking about something natural, that the way that we love neighbors is by defining neighbor as people who are just like us. And then Christ cuts across that altogether, showing us that he had something altogether different in mind. You see, the trouble with love that sees boundaries like that is that it is, it's without cost. When you go back, though, into the passage in Leviticus 19, there's a whole series of laws which gives a more expansive idea of what was God's intent behind this command to love your neighbor. And those laws covered all kinds of things, but just to pick up a few examples, they covered things like the law about not, not reaping to the edge of your field. Do you know about the gleaning law? You see it there in the book of Ruth, that if a, a wealthy man owns a field and he has a crop or a vineyard and he has a crop of grapes, he's supposed to leave some of the, the grain at the edge of the field. So he's supposed to leave some of the low-hanging grapes. So he's supposed to leave the ones that are on the floor. Those are the explicit instructions here. Why? So that poor people could come in and they could gather enough just hand-to-mouth living, enough just to make a meal for their family that night while you go and sell your sacks of grain on the market. It's a bit like you've heard recently how some of the supermarkets are preempting, I think, the government's legislation by saying, hey, we're, we're really nice people. We're going to give our food away that's out of date to the poor. And of course, I think that's a really great thing to do because usually it, there's nothing wrong with that food. But you see, there's actually no cost to them involved because they had to throw the food away anyway. It's more like if a supermarket like Tesco's had a policy that at the end of the night, when, it, when all the shopping's done and the, the, uh, the, the, tilly, the, the, the cashiers are about to go home, they empty their, their drawers and then they leave one stack of notes in the drawer every night or the pound coin section is always left and people can just come in and help themselves. It's more like that. There's an actual cost involved. So these laws had to do with helping the poor and the sojourner, it says. They had to do with helping people who were kind of working class. There's a law here about not oppressing your neighbor or robbing him and, and not holding back the wages of hired labor. So we have all these kind of labor laws, don't we, these days, protecting people with minimum wage and with contracts and so on. This was a kind of prototype of that, that, that when you, as an employer, hold back the wages of the people who, who, who depend on you, you are oppressing them. And the Bible says, no, you, you mustn't do that because you're called to love your neighbor even though they're in a different social strata to you and they depend on you entirely. Don't see them as a nuisance. See your, your role as a responsible one toward them. And then a little bit further on in the chapter, it talks about when strangers and sojourners come into your land. In other words, foreigners, non-Jews. It says that you should treat them as you would a native. People who are the most unlike you ought to be treated as though they were your mate that you grew up with down the lane. And all of that is deeply costly because it's talking about you as the strong taking on the needs of the weak around you. The poor, the oppressed, the stranger, the foreigner. It's saying, let them live off you because you have more than enough. So to... to to have this kind of bounded view of love is to, to take out any cost from love. I don't want the weak to depend on me. I don't want those who are in need to depend on me. 
So I draw a line around me, and anything which costs too much, like associating with someone who I passionately disagree with, or who, who isn't loving towards me, or so on, that's how we naturally love. And what Christ does here is he comes in and shows us that while these distinctions still exist, they oughtn't to control the way we treat people. So he says, he acknowledges that you'll still have enemies, but he says, love them. Love your enemies. Sure, there's still people who are your friends and those who are not your friends. But he says, don't let that distinction determine how you act toward them. Love your enemies. He says, pray for those who persecute you. There are people who hate Christians and hate the church and will do everything they can to to mock, ridicule, or worse. Jesus says, we pray for them. We plead on behalf of them to the Father. He talks about God who sends, who makes his son rise on the evil and the good. That God is... He looks down and he sees people who are part of his family and people who aren't. But he says, I'll let the sun rise on you all equally. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust, or the righteous and the unrighteous. So it's not that God obliterates these distinctions when he looks down at mankind, or that we ought to either, but that those distinctions do not determine how you relate to other people. The natural way is to have this bounded love, and God's way is to have a love that, that crosses boundaries. What is the difference between these kinds of love? I think that one is, to use a fancy word, one has a tendency towards homogeneity, towards creating communities that are just homogeneous, and that, which means that everyone is just basically the same. There's a lot of people who would advocate that churches ought to purposefully go after that because it tends to be more fruitful. That if you have a church which is just for this type of person, then all the other people in society who are like that, who are not Christians, are far more likely to come along and and come to faith. And so the pragmatic ends justify the means. But I have a very big problem with that. And it's that at what point do we believe that the gospel is a miraculous thing? At what point do we believe that the gospel creates communities that are unexplainable on human terms? I know that there's not an enormous amount of diversity in this room, not yet. But I I never want us to be a church that pursues just a, a narrow section of society deliberately as though that were God's intent or aim. I want this church, I want churches in general... I believe what the Bible wants is that they reflect the kingdom of God and reflect the extraordinary miracle of love that crosses boundaries. When Jesus said in John 13 that this is how they'll know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another, do you think that in his mind, he was, his intention was that because you're all so alike and you love each other everyone's going to look and just gasp when they see your community no, it doesn't work like that does it I, I, you could go and visit a mosque down the road or a, a tennis club down the road or any number of things and you'll find people who really do love each other do you look at them and say wow that is the power of God at work in that community no you don't you say it's very explainable on human terms that, that people who are alike flock together don't they they, they love each other naturally When Jesus said that, 
You've got to keep in mind that his disciples were an extraordinarily diverse bunch of people and he was anticipating more diversity yet to come. That in the room he had zealots and tax collectors, people who would have happily murdered Romans and people who worked for Romans. He had academics and he had guys like Peter, James and John who were fishermen who are described in Acts 4 as uneducated common men. So when you looked at Jesus' disciples, one of the things that would have most struck you about them in distinction from other groups of disciples around other rabbis was that they were so unlikely. This group doesn't belong together. How much more then when the church is born and explodes out of Jerusalem and begins to witness to Gentiles and cross boundaries into all the known world. The gospel of who God is and his love and his covenant love has never before done that. It's always remained siloed in synagogues in this city and that city. And suddenly the apostles are making it their explicit aim to preach to people who are very different from them. That is not explainable on human terms. That's what Jesus has in mind here when he says, love your neighbor. He says it's love that crosses the boundary from friend to enemy, from helper to persecutor, from good to bad, from just to unjust. It's love that crosses boundaries. So that when Paul says in Galatians 3 that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, it's not a comment on men and women's roles. It's not a comment on, on slavery or any of these things, it is a comment on the, on the extraordinary miracle that is the church, that in one room you will have a family forged out of such diversity. That's what it's about. There's love that's natural, and then there's love that's supernatural. There's love that's bounded, and then there's this love which Jesus is advocating, which is boundless. Let me give you a third distinction. There's love which is responsive, and then there's love that takes the initiative. You think about it. How does love emerge from your heart? I think the normal, natural way of things is that love emerges in response to the right environment, the right stimulus. So when we're talking about this natural love, some of its characteristics are that it's conditional. We love people naturally, but we love them once they've met certain conditions. That they, <clears throat> they meet certain criteria in our minds. This natural love is by nature fearful also. That we, are, we tend to veer away from the things that we, are, um, we, we don't understand or don't, don't get and don't know about. It's conditional, it's fearful. All of this is just to show you that it's basically responsive. Love springs from the heart, sure, but it springs in response to the right environment, this natural love. Another thing is that, and this is true of all of us, it is dictated by feelings. The people you hang out with voluntarily are usually the people you feel good about, feel warm towards. In other words, love is is a reaction that in the right situation with the right people and the right circumstances, you hit it off and love is the result. That's the natural love. But when Jesus says here, 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he, and he wants to so draw a distinction between what the tax collectors do and what we do, what the Gentiles do and what we do. We have to realize that the love he's talking about is not just reactive and responsive. It's a love which takes the initiative, which is proactive. So rather than being based on certain conditions, it is unconditional in, in certain senses. That you don't have to meet these qualifications in order to receive love from a child of, of God. That instead of being fearful, it is fearless. That we're not afraid of difference, and we're not afraid of diversity, and we're not afraid even of our enemies. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Love your enemies. Sure, they want your blood. But he says, your job is, is not to be afraid of them, but to love them. Because the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. That the two things sort of cancel each other out. You can either be afraid of people, or you can, you can love them. And that love isn't an automatic thing. It's something which is initiated out of your heart. It's deliberate. It's a choice. And so, rather than it being reactive also in terms of being dictated by your feelings, I would want to put it this way. The love that Christ is talking about here dictates to your feelings. I think we're used to thinking about Christian love, or the, you know, agape love, the kind of love which Christ is talking about here, is something which is done very stoically, with a real grim determination, regardless of how you feel. And I'm not saying that there's no truth to that whatsoever, but I don't think that's the full picture of what the New Testament has to say about it. Where do your feelings come into this? Well, think about it. Doesn't, doesn't, Paul, doesn't Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13 that that kind of cold love is actually worthless. He says, he puts it like this in verse 3. He says, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What's he talking about there? He's not talking about love that's just a choice. Because he's saying, I could choose deliberately to give away everything I have to my enemy, or to, my, to the poor people who need it, or to whatever. And we'd say, wow, what a wonderful demonstration of godly Christian love, that even though he doesn't feel anything towards them, he gives out of the abundance of his possessions. And Paul says, no, 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 I, I can give away everything I have, and have not love. Isn't he saying here that there is, that in the Christian heart, that there, there has to be, the feeling of love, if I can put it like that. I'm not saying that this is easy or simple, but what I'm saying is that rather than our feelings dictating to us, that what Christ is talking about here is, is, is a love which dictates to your feelings and so begins to reshape your heart that you can have compassion even, even on your persecutor, even on your enemy. It's not responsive. It's a love which takes initiative, which is proactive, the last distinction I want to show you is this, that there's love which is faithless, and then there's love which only flourishes from your belief in God. What do I mean? Well, ultimately, the natural love that I've been describing, the love which is normal and ordinary, which your average guy has, which a tax collector has, which a Gentile has, that love does not require any conscious belief in God, does it? I would argue that it does require God. 
I think that the very fact that we have love at all in the world is because of God's grace to mankind. But it doesn't require a conscious belief in God. There are plenty of people downstairs below us who would say, I have no belief in God, but they love the person sat next to them and would sacrifice for them. But Christ is calling you to a level of love which absolutely requires that you believe in God. It requires your faith to exercise and to live it out. First of all, because you have to have seen it modeled to you by the God you believe in. Isn't that what he shows us here? He says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, because he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What he's saying to us here, if we can take this and run with it for a moment, he's saying that you have learned what love is because of your belief in God. And isn't the case that God loved you when you hated him? Or when you knew nothing about him, he went in pursuit of you. Isn't it the case that Christ came on a mission to rescue us when we naturally despise and hate the very Savior who came for us? Isn't it the case that we love our sin? And that so often, that the ordinary state of the human heart is to delight in your sin more than to delight in God. But that he looks upon us with compassion and he runs after us like the shepherd going after that one sheep. That sheep might be determined to get itself lost and killed. But he says the shepherd goes after it and that's love. We wouldn't know what this love is if we didn't have a belief in the God of love, the God who initiates. This is a God unlike any God in any other religion. A God who goes after you to save you by his own power and actions. Not a God who stands far off and, and casts commands for you to be able to get nearer to him. We only can love this because we've seen it modeled to us by Jesus. But, but it's more than that. We can only love like this because of our ongoing faith in in the God that we believe in. Isn't that what he's telling us here? That you can only love your your enemies and and pray for your persecutors when you you believe that God is going to listen to you and and be involved in those situations. Or if I can put it like this as well. You can only love in this way when you know that God is going to reward you. When your faith is more certain of God's rewards for those who love in this way than it is of the dangers that you are facing or of the dislike you feel. That's how he puts it here. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? This kind of love absolutely requires faith in the God that we profess, doesn't it? And that's why, just to bring this down to a landing, I would say that love, this kind of love, is the greatest outward expression and proof of the gospel that we believe for all the reasons I've told you. Because it's totally unexplainable. Because it smashes through boundaries. Because it takes initiative and is not just reactive. 
It's determined. And because it tells the world that the God we believe in is real. We wouldn't love otherwise, would we? Not like this. 